If you don't mind, I think that I'll sit today. And if you do mind, and you <laughs> if you do mind and you want to rebalance the room, you are welcome to stand for the duration uh, while I sit. If you weren't here last week, we, we talked through the book of Jonah, and really what I did was I told the story of Jonah, Jonah 1 through 4. And at the conclusion of telling the story of Jonah, I felt like you needed to hear one more story. So I told the story of the prodigal son. And really the story wasn't so much about the prodigal son as it was about the prodigal son's older brother. And what I did at the end of that story was that I connected the two because they, they had some parallel themes. With Jonah, Jonah had gone, he had preached to the Ninevites somewhat against his will. He, 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 oh, he went reluctantly and preached, and then it says that he went and he sat outside of the city, watching in the scorching heat to see what would happen. And he sat outside of the city while they repented and while God relented. And this is similar to the story of the older brother because if you remember, uh, the older brother was outside of the house when the party started to happen because the younger brother came home. And the father comes out searching for him and he finds him. And here the older brother is and here Jonah is both sitting outside looking in while heaven is touching earth, while grace is mixing with repentance and sin and a beautiful thing is happening, they are sitting outside looking in because of their sense of entitlement, really because of self-righteousness, because they felt like while they deserved the grace of God, the brother in the city did not. And so we're going to be touching on that idea in greater detail today, focusing on chapters three and chapters four of the book of Jonah. And really what I want to do today is just give some life lessons that we can learn from the book of Jonah. And before I do, I, I do want to provide just one more introductory sort of thought about this book that I think is going to give us some context into everything else we'll be talking about. So the, the book of Jonah was written in the literary style of satire. Perhaps you've heard of satire. If you haven't heard of satire, you probably have at least heard of Saturday Night Live. <laughs> Saturday Night Live is satire. So what is satire? Satire is when the author or those performing the skit, they, they, they take a look at a particular person's life and they magnify a particular flaw or a particular event where they had a faux pas, and they make fun of that event. They reduce the complexity of the human being down to one thing, and they make fun of it. 
That's what Saturday Night Live is. They do it with politicians, with movie stars. They do it with even fictitious people that represent a kind of people group. It's it's a bit of a caricature, if you will. Have you ever gone to an amusement park and someone's sitting there drawing at an easel and you look at the poor unsuspecting child next to the easel and you would have never even noticed how big his ears were had it not been for the caricature that was being drawn? We do this to our kids so that they can have a little bit of a complex the rest of their lives, right? (laughs) I never allowed someone to draw a caricature of me because I feel like if I look in the mirror, my nose is big enough. You're all looking at my nose now, (laughs) certain of that. I don't need a caricature to point it out. So it's written as a satire, and here's what that means. At some point, Jonah would have passed some information along that only he could have known, and then an author picked up that information, put it into a book, and they end up just pointing at all of the flaws of Jonah along the way. He, he runs from God. He's reluctant. He does the bare minimum when he preaches this message to Nineveh. And then he's sitting there angry outside of the city. They're pointing out all of his flaws, and it's supposed to be funny and ridiculous. And it really is. And what's interesting about the book, too, is that you have Jonah doing the exact same thing. Jonah is also reducing the Ninevites to to, to this idea of satire or caricature. He looks at them and he says that they, they are violent people. They're an awful people. And don't get me wrong, they were. But these were also people that had children and spouses and they lived in community and they had parents and they were part of a family unit. They they tilled the fields. They they did metalwork. They had to have some sort of cohesiveness and unity as a community or else they wouldn't have have, have done as well as they did. A house divided against itself falls. These were human beings, but yet he reduced them. And really, doesn't he do the same thing to God? We have a God who is all-powerful, who is everywhere, who is all-knowing, so many incredible qualities about God. And yet there's one thing that Jonah looks at and says, I don't like this quality about you. The fact that you you are slow to anger, that you are compassionate, that you relent, especially on the Assyrians, these awful people. And Jonah can't get over it. You see, what we do when we're angry with someone is we tend to demonize them. When we are hurt by someone, we tend to demonize them. In fact, so much so that we, we oftentimes are watching for the next thing that person does just to keep justifying and building the anger that we already have. Maybe in part, this is what Jonah was doing sitting outside of the city. He was waiting to see what God would do, the text says. Was he waiting to see that God was going to destroy or was he waiting to see what he knew what would happen, which was that God wouldn't destroy? And that would allow him just to keep stewing and being more and more angry and justify his anger. So we have caricatures all over the place in this book. 
Interestingly enough, you and I can also paint caricatures of one another. We can, we can, we can draw caricatures of God. How easy is it for us when we face a particularly traumatic situation to reduce God to the God that didn't take care of that situation for us? How many people walk away from faith because we fixate on that one thing that we feel like God should have done that he didn't? So here it is, a satire. And now just allow me to walk through some observations from this book, and there's a part of me that feels a little self-conscious about these observations. I, I, I want us to treat them like proverbs. Proverbs meaning these are general, this is general wisdom. But yet we could certainly all poke holes in each one of these things. But it is general wisdom for living. If you have your Bibles, please, uh, you are welcome to turn to the book of Jonah. Jonah is about 15 to 20 pages in from the uh, New Testament. It comes just before the book of Micah. We're going to be spending some time there. Uh, there will also be some, uh, some scripture up on the screen in a little bit. The, the first the first observation that I want to make today is this, and it may not make sense at first, but of course I'll take the time to explain it. It's this, that doing kingdom work is about your worship, not about your performance. Doing kingdom work is about your worship, it's not about your performance. What could I possibly mean by that? Well, if you are a person who serves in children's ministry, or you are a person who greets at the door, or you are a person who serves on the worship team, or you lead a small group, or maybe you are a person who, who takes the mission outside of these four walls and you serve as a coach of a baseball team, or you are a teacher and you think about teaching missionally, or you are a counselor, or, or whatever your job might be, you think about it missionally. Here's the temptation. The temptation is to think about our performance when we're doing the kingdom work. The temptation is to think about the results that we have or we don't have. The temptation is to walk into that with pride. And here's, here's the problem with thinking about performance. Here's the, the problem with walking into doing kingdom work with that sense of pride. Pride will lead you one of two ways. Either it will lead you to take credit for the results, and therefore you become puffed up and you aren't worshiping God. Or if things go terribly wrong, you will take credit for the results. You will become deflated and therefore fail to worship God. You see, when we are doing kingdom work with the desire for performance, we are, we are attempting to maybe impress 
impress God, impress others. We want to be able to show our work, see the results. But instead, God wants us to enter into kingdom work, not as performers, but as worshipers, as obedient worshipers. So this is where I would like us to turn to Jonah chapter 3, starting at verse 4. It says this, and maybe I'll read it off the screen because I have a different version. Jonah began going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. I made a comment about this last week. I said that this may be the worst message, the worst sermon ever preached. Because this is it. Uh, eight words in, in our language. Let me see. NIV, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Yes. It was, it was worse than that because in the Hebrew language, it was only five words. <laughs> he, he wasn't exactly telling the whole story. He was just preaching the judgment. The Ninevites believed God. <laughs> a fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger. So he preaches this message. He doesn't do a great job. And yet the results are astounding. This is, this is every preacher's, every teacher's, every prophet's dream. <laughs> this, is what, this is what you picture, right? That you share and that, 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 that God moves in such a way that human hearts are changed. And yet Jonah goes outside of the city upset. Here's what I find to be so interesting about this, that there were tremendous results and it is as clear to you as it could possibly be that the results were not Jonah's to own. In fact, if we could, if we could measure these results, you know, let's, let's say that, that, and this is a very human way to put this, let's say some, some kingdom work gets done and the results are this big from here to here. In this case, because it was a whole city repenting, the results go from about here to the ceiling. That's a, that's a lot of results in this fake scale I'm creating right now. And then I wonder, okay, how much of that was Jonah responsible for? Okay, well, if it starts here and goes all the way to there, and we know that Jonah was reluctant, we know that Jonah didn't exactly preach a very compelling message, he wasn't very compelling, he did the bare minimum, uh, he probably didn't prepare very long. In that case, I would say Jonah's, Jonah's part in the whole thing was about that much out of all of that. 
I mean, don't get me wrong. He, he was obedient. God wants to partner with us. This is the way God chooses to do it. God chose Jonah to do this work. So Jonah did play a part in the whole thing. But as I thought about that and how much he was responsible for the, the results, I began wondering, okay, well, what if, what if Jonah, his heart was in it? What if he wasn't so reluctant and he went and preached the same message? Here's, here's how much of the results he would be responsible for. Did you see my fingers move? They did. They're probably moving the whole time, but intentionally I'm trying to make it look bigger. Now, what if instead he spent a whole week and he prayed about the message and he came and he delivered it with so much compassion, so much fervor, so much charisma? How, how much of the results would he be responsible for then? They went up just a little bit. The point is the results are God. They're, they're his. They're, the, the results are his results. It is up to him. It is God who changes human hearts. It is God who brings transformation. Jonah doesn't have that ability. I don't have that ability. You don't have that ability. We need to stop thinking about performance and start thinking about worshiping God as we are going about doing kingdom work. And there is tremendous freedom in that. And that is life lesson number one for today. Here's life lesson number two. Even prophets aren't perfect. Even prophets aren't perfect. I mean, this becomes pretty obvious from this book. That the prophet, the one who is supposed to hear God and proclaim his message, runs from God. The pagans... The pagan sailors ask, who is, who is your God? And he says, oh yeah, my God. My God, he's the God of the heavens who created the earth and the sea. And the pagan sailors must be thinking, what a doofus. Why did you come to the sea? You just said he created the sea. Where, where are you going to run from him? And that's kind of the point. There is nowhere to run. But he runs. He doesn't want to go. He finally goes reluctantly. He preaches their bare minimum. And something else is being revealed about Jonah that is deep in his heart. And that is this, that Jonah carries this root of bitterness in him toward the Assyrians. And it likely wasn't just Jonah. It likely was all of his people. Because they were an especially violent nation that did some terrible things. So he carried this root of, root of bitterness in him. He was angry. That bitterness led to racism toward an entire nation, toward an entire city. And he could not fathom that God would exercise compassion toward them. And that, that wound that, that created the, the lie that he believed, that created this ongoing root of bitterness that, that, that allowed him to, to, to hate, couldn't allow him to experience the grace of God in the moment when he was sitting outside of the city. Even prophets aren't perfect. There's a reason I wanted to bring this point up 
It's because you and I, we feel, we feel this pressure that once we tell someone we are a believer in Jesus, we feel this pressure to now be a good person. We feel this pressure to be perfect. Do you? I do. Our staff feels it. They haven't told me necessarily that they feel it, but they feel it. There's something about coming on to staff And now, even though you are still a mess and God is still working things out in you, there's this piece of you that feels like, no, but I have to be perfect. It's not true. I don't think any of you put that on the staff. I only know because I've been on staff at a church before. I know that feeling. I had the same feeling when I was asked to become an elder. It's like, I don't think I want to. I don't think I need that pressure again. But the reality is you feel it too. You feel it as a person who's a small group leader. Isn't there a part of you that feels this pressure to be perfect, to to be a good person, to be righteous by your actions? Even as a parent, as you profess to your children that you're a believer, you have this feeling like, okay, now I've got to be perfect. As a teacher, as a coach, whatever it is, we feel this pressure but even prophets aren't perfect. This is a reminder to us that our righteousness isn't about what we've done. Our righteousness is about clothing ourselves in Christ who is righteousness. His righteousness is what we receive. His righteousness covers us. You don't have the ability to make yourself holy, so stop trying. It is God through Jesus Christ that makes us holy. You aren't perfect and you're not going to be perfect. But you have the light of God, the Holy Spirit in you. So stop trying to perform and just simply start worshiping as you go about. This is your mission, to worship And as you're worshiping, as you are living authentically for Christ and in Christ, he'll be made known. He will have his results. You don't worry about that. Even prophets aren't perfect. Here's another one that I feel is worth noting Number three, God wants your honest communication. We see this in the book of Jonah, don't we? We see this from the psalmists for sure. Think about Jonah. In fact, let's, let's go here. Let's not just think about him. Let's read this from, from uh, chapter four, verses one through four. It says this, but this was very displeasing to Jonah. What was displeasing? The fact that Nineveh was turning and God was relenting. This was very displeasing to Jonah and he became angry. What does it say that he did next? 
Let's see what this says. It says this. It says he prayed. He became, he became angry and he prayed. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? This is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew that you are a gracious, good, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent from punishing. And now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? Here's something that isn't easily noticed just from reading this. But this is what's interesting. As Jonah is being honest about his anger, he quotes scripture. He doesn't just quote any scripture, though. You're gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. These were actually words that God spoke to Moses on Sinai right after God had relented and didn't wipe out the Israelites for the golden calf. Moses was sitting there. God comes by, and while he's passing, he says, I am a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love. And this is the verse that Jonah remembers while he's sitting outside of the city watching God relent. But he's angry. He's so angry he wishes he could die. When's the last time you had honest communication with God? I remember, um, I wasn't going to share this. It was right after I had resigned from my position as lead pastor on the west side of Columbus, I don't know, 10, 11 years ago. You know, you, you plant a church thinking that this is going to be great. The Lord led me into this. I'm going to serve and there will be results. But it doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes what you set to do doesn't go the way you think it's going to go. And I finally came to a place where I resigned. I had burned out entirely. I couldn't do it anymore. And I remember standing at the back of what we called the sanctuary some of you have been to the bridge. This was the location where we had planted the church at, at the bridge before it was a bridge. I was there all alone. It was, uh, it was in the back of the sanctuary and I remember beginning to pray and my prayer turned into to complete rage, screaming at God, swearing because I couldn't believe he would do this to me. How could you call me into this only to embarrass me?
God can take it. This is what relationships are made of, right? Honesty. Honesty even with our anger. Jonah was honest. And maybe for Jonah, maybe this was a breakthrough for him. We don't, we don't know because the book doesn't actually tell us at the end what Jonah ends up doing. It, because the purpose of the book is for you to answer the question, what will you do with this? But as I sat in the teaching team meeting and Adam Heath was sharing, and when Adam Heath shares and says something, I'm usually like, yeah, this is probably true. Especially since two days earlier, I was listening to a message by Tim Keller, and Tim Keller said the same thing. And I usually have the same thought. Like, if Tim Keller says something, it's probably true. Well, as soon as they start aligning, you're like, aligning, you're like I, I'm not even going to try and argue with it. Here's what, here's what they both said. Is it possible that we can assume that Jonah did repent? And here's why. Who else would have known but Jonah that he ran? Who else would have known except Jonah and the sailors what happened on that boat? Who else would have known that he was thrown overboard into the water, swallowed by a fish, prayed this particular prayer, was spewed out by the fish onto dry land, was called again by God, who else could have known but Jonah? Who else could have known but Jonah that he went to Nineveh? Of course, they would have known that they repented, but that he was sitting outside of the city having this conversation with God in complete anger. And who else, who, why in the world, why would Jonah have told this story in this way to make him look so bad if he hadn't repented and been redeemed from this mess that he was sitting in? Only a repentant heart could possibly recount all the terrible things that one has done before the masses. And maybe these moments of him sharing his anger before God, maybe this was the beginning of the breakthrough for him. We need to be honest. Number four. Bitterness is a prison. Forgiveness is freedom. Bitterness is a prison. Forgiveness is freedom. So here we have Jonah. He is imprisoning himself on the boat. He's imprisoning himself as he gets cast into the water because of his bitterness. As he's swallowed by a fish, is he sitting outside of the city? They are enjoying the grace of God while he is out there sitting in the stew of his anger. In bitterness, he has imprisoned himself. You 
It was about one year ago, a little over a year ago. In fact, it'll be one year and one month tomorrow. I want to show a picture of my cousin Christopher. He looks pretty sophisticated here, his glasses and all. He's a loyal follower of Jesus. Don't let the glasses fool you. He was a major cut up. He was so much fun. I tell so many stories about Christopher, and I've got to be honest, as much as the guy loved Jesus, most of the stories that I would tell you would not be appropriate for this group right here. <laughs> we'll have to chat offline. Loyal, a good father, good husband, good cousin. And uh, December 29th of 2022, he was in Canton, Ohio, where he lived. He went out for a drive, and uh, his car broke down. It was disabled on the side of the road. And as he sat on the side of the road waiting, it wasn't a particularly bad night. The roadside assistance service that he called was not busy at all that night, but for some reason he sat there for three hours and 20 minutes just sitting in a disabled vehicle on the shoulder of the highway. And about three hours and 20 minutes in, if I have that detail correct, another car is coming from behind, veers off, hits him from behind, and he dies instantly. 38 years old, leaves behind a wife and three boys. And uh, it's painful. An accident's an accident. But it turns out it wasn't just purely an accident. The guy that hit him was using, using meth. It was in his system. It was in his car. He's being charged for driving under the influence, for vehicular homicide, for possession, for drug trafficking. This is the guy. I'm pretty angry. I still am. I was then, and I, I am now. And to be honest, I kind of feel like I have a right to be angry. Maybe Jonah had a right to be angry. So this guy is going to be going through uh, our justice system, which our justice system can only do so much, of course. He'll probably end up getting some sort of sentence, maybe for life, I don't know. But the justice that this world can offer, it's, it can't be true justice because in my opinion, true justice is this guy gives me my cousin back. This guy gives Max Mason and Elliot their father back, Monica, her husband back, my Aunt Pam and Uncle Bill, their son back, my cousin Brian, his brother back. This guy has a debt to our family that he cannot repay. 
he can't ever repay this debt. He can't bring my cousin back. That's the debt that he owes me. He can't do it. In fact, the only person I suppose at this point, at least in my life, that can repay his debt is me. My forgiveness has to reach as deep as his sin against me. And that is the only thing that can possibly cover his debt to me. That's unfair. But it's the only thing that's going to set me free from the root of bitterness into freedom. Otherwise, I'm just creating a prison for myself. And so I've forgiven the guy. And I'll forgive him again and again and again and again. I just looked at the guy's picture this morning and had to forgive him again. Who has wronged you? Who, who do you need to forgive? Whose debt do you need to cover? Because they can't possibly cover it for you. They can't repay you. The only way the only way you can forgive is to realize the depth of God's forgiveness in your own life. We forgive because he forgave us. If God held on to the bitterness, he would set himself in prison. But he's free, eternally free. We forgive because he's forgiven us. Jonah in this story needed to, to, to cross that bridge to forgive whatever grievances against the people of Nineveh. Maybe there were personal grievances against his family, against people he loved, certainly against his community. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. If you could put that up on the screen for us. Thank you. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. I want to pause here for a moment. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you. We thank you for your mercy in our lives for grace that we have not deserved, for the fact that you have covered our sin. And Lord, you ask us to do hard things. You ask us to be like you, and we cannot be like you outside of your grace and mercy. So God, in this precious moment, we invite you into this space, into our hearts. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to forgive.
Lord, in this moment, as perhaps we feel angry toward you, Lord, help us not to hold that in. Remind us later to deal with this, to, to start talking with you about it. And in so doing, God, would you bring healing to our wounded souls? Amen. I want to share this quote from a guy by the name of Walter Wink. Walter Wink, believe it or not, is more than just a funny name. <laughs> he, was a, he was a teacher, a scholar, a, uh, an author, and he wrote this that I think is so beautiful. The gift our enemy may be able to bring us is to see aspects of ourselves that we cannot discover any other way than through our enemies. Our friends seldom tell us these things. They are our friends precisely because they are able to overlook or ignore this part of us. The enemy is thus not merely a hurdle to be leaped on the way to God. The enemy can be the way to God. We cannot come to terms with our shadow except through our enemies. I don't know what else to say about that. Except I think it's just as clear to you as it is to me that Walter Wink really is more than just a funny name. Let me go on to the last point. Grace is unfair. Grace is unfair. Thank God, grace is unfair. Thank God, grace is unfair. It's not fair to me that I have to repay this guy's debt of my cousin by forgiveness. It's certainly not fair that God has to die on a cross for me. Grace isn't fair. Now, God has the ability to be as generous as he wants to be. This is, this is true, and he can do that. He chooses that. Jonah was looking on the city of Nineveh, and he was saying their debt was this big, and he felt like his debt was only this big. So Jonah felt like it's not fair. But the reality is Jonah did nothing to deserve the grace of God, absolutely nothing, nothing. This is the sin of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. They, they, they felt entitled. They, they felt self-righteous. They felt like they didn't need the grace of God as much. Jesus over and over again made it very clear. Grace extends as deeply as it needs to extend to the depths. Grace isn't fair. Thank God. Let's pray. Father, we invite you to 
move in us to being, bring transformation to us, to do healing deep down in our hearts and souls in a way that we can't do by ourselves. We thank you for your grace poured out on the cross for us. You are truly good. You are truly merciful. You are, in fact, a gracious and compassionate God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for loving us. Amen.